Tonight we're moving into chapter 19 of our study of knowing God. And I think this ended up being one of the longest chapters in the book. I think it's about 30 pages. So we're not going to get all the way through it tonight. Uh, We'll try to do about half of it. And uh, then we'll try to pick up the second half next week. But this chapter is about the theme of adoption and the fact that we can be called children of God. And so he begins the chapter by asking the question, what is a Christian? And he says, one way of thinking about it is a Christian is someone who has God as their father. And that is a very biblical way of referring to us as in relationship to God. Now that we're in Christ, we can call God our father and we are his children. And one of the points that he makes toward the beginning of the chapter, and I think it's helpful as a reminder, is that not everyone has that right to call God their father. Uh, In the world, generally, people have that idea that we're all children of God. But the Bible makes a distinction, doesn't it, between those who are uh, in Adam still and fallen and those who are in Christ. So the Bible makes a distinction. And so we can say that all of us are creatures of God. We're all owned by God in the sense that he's our maker. But not all of us can claim the title of a son or daughter of God in the way that the Bible speaks of it, because that comes by way of redemption through Christ and through faith in his name. So he says sonship to God is not therefore a universal status into which everyone enters by natural birth, but a supernatural gift, which one receives through receiving Jesus. So not everyone is naturally born as a child of God. But at a point in their lives, they may be born again as a child of God. And so John 1, 12 and 13 tells us to all who did receive him, that is receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right. That is the privilege or the authority to be children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So this is not a natural thing that all people have. It is a gift of grace. So sonship is a gift of grace. It is not a natural sonship, but an adoptive relationship. Ephesians 1.5 says, He, God, predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And so this is a part of God's redeeming plan that in calling us to be his own, that he would also call us into his family to be adopted as his children. The revelation to the believer that God is his father, he says, is in a sense, the climax of the Bible. So like a climax of the Bible story. He says in the Old Testament, God revealed his covenant name as Yahweh. So God comes to Moses in Exodus 3 and says, I am who I am, Yahweh, the Lord. And a dominant theme in the Old Testament is the holiness of God. And the proper response to God is to fear him and to trust him and to obey his word. In the New Testament, now, none of that is gone, right? 
So none of that is undone by what we read in the, in the New Testament. God is still holy, isn't he? God is still holy. He is still to be feared and honored. But a new relationship becomes more the dominant emphasis. And that is this relationship of the fatherhood of God. And so the term father, the, the name father becomes the covenant name by which his people call him. And so we have a new relationship that's emphasized. Christians are his children, his own sons and daughters, his heirs. And in the chapter, he talks about the, the background of adoption in the ancient world, which I think is helpful because I think it gives a little bit more insight into what the Bible is trying to teach us by way of this metaphor. Because when we think of adoption today in our culture, we think, we think of adopting young children. Generally speaking, you know, infants, young children, sometimes older, um, but a lot of times it's underage children. Um, he says in the Roman, in the Greco-Roman world, it was a little bit different. There, the idea of adoption was to find an heir who would carry on your name, carry on your legacy, carry on your family property and business. And so you would adopt someone to be your heir. And that, that person, especially if you were childless, you would adopt someone to become your heir. And when I read that, I thought of Abraham. Do you remember Abraham when uh, he was talking with God before he had either Ishmael or Isaac? And Abraham said, God, my servant Eleazar will be my heir. And so that was a situation in which Abraham found himself. He did not have an heir for his name. So he was going to, in a sense, adopt Eleazar, one of his faithful servants, to be his heir. That's kind of the idea of uh, ancient adoption. And so that's an interesting thought, isn't it? That, that we are being adopted into the family for the specific purpose of receiving the benefits, the blessings of being a child of God, receiving the inheritance. So he says to those who are Christ's, the holy God is a loving father. They belong to his family. They may approach him without fear and always be sure of his fatherly concern and care. This is the heart of the New Testament message. And so he says, our comprehension of God as our father need not be limited or distorted by our own experiences with our earthly fathers. And here he's talking about one of the, the, the criticisms or objections that someone might have in thinking about this idea of the fatherhood of God. They might say, it's hard really to picture God as our father because I may have had a non-existent or a bad relationship with my earthly father. And so he says, some will therefore complain that this is not a good analogy or a, not a good metaphor for describing God's relationship to us. And he says, that's really nonsense because all of us have an innate sense of what a good father is, is supposed to be. Even if we've not experienced that personally in our lives, we can see and we can recognize what a good father is or what a good father is supposed to be. So we have that, I think, by nature. But then he says, even above that, we have the clear testimony of the scriptures that teach us what perfect fatherhood is. 
and demonstrated for us in God's relationship to Jesus and to us. And so we have an innate sense of ideal fatherhood, but we have a perfect revelation of ideal fatherhood in the scriptures. And so he says that argument really doesn't hold. That objection doesn't hold. God's relationship as father to us is meant to be a reflection and reproduction of God the Father's own fellowship with Jesus, God the Son. So we see a perfect relationship of father and son in God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ. And that relationship is, in a sense, to be replicated or at least modeled after that relationship that God has with Jesus. And so then he looks at the Gospel of John as a guide to show us what the relationship of God to Jesus looked like. And he points us to a few things. One is fatherhood implies authority. And throughout the Gospel of John, you have several places where Jesus refers to that. I've come to do the will of my father. So John 6, 38, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So there you see a perfect relationship of a loving father and a loving, obedient son in, in relationship, the son doing the father's will. Also in fatherhood, in the gospel of John, there is an implied affection, a love, the father for the son. John 5.20 says, for the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. So one of the aspects of fatherhood is not only authority, but love and affection, the father for the son. Fatherhood also implies fellowship of unity, of unity of purpose, unity of sharing. Jesus says in John 8, 29, the one who sent me is with me for he has not left me alone for I always do what pleases him. And so there is a, a submission of the son to the father and the carrying out of his will. There is a receiving of love from the father. There is a sharing in fellowship with the father. And there's also in the gospel of John an implied honor that is due the father. So John 17, one, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, father, the hour has come glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And so the father has authority over the son loves the son, fellowships with the son, but also bestows honor on the son. John 5, 22, moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son that all may honor the son, just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. And he walks us through these aspects of the fatherhood of God to Jesus and John to remind us that these are the pattern with which God loves us too in the New Testament. So each of these dimensions of fatherhood apply to us as believers as well. So God is our authority. He is our father. We are to submit to him as Jesus submitted to the will of the father. We are, um, we have fellowship with our heavenly father through Jesus Christ. Uh, we have 
uh, love from the Father as his adopted children. And we are even honored by God through this relationship that we have with him through Jesus Christ. John 12, 26 says, whoever serves me must follow me and where I am, my servant also will be and my father will honor the one who serves me. And so we will share in not only the love of God, but even in the honor that God bestows on Christ because of our union with him. The scriptures say that we will reign with Christ, that we will receive an eternal inheritance reserved in heaven for us. And so all of these um, aspects of fatherhood, perfect fatherhood of the father to the son are demonstrated to us as believers as well. He says that adoption is the highest privilege. Adoption is the highest privilege that we can experience through the gospel. And he gives us a definition of what adoption is. And this comes from the Westminster Confession. All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth. We don't use that word much anymore, do we? Promises, guarantees. God vouchsafeth in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. That's a rich statement. We'll look at it in more in depth in a few weeks on Sunday night. But he says that is what the scriptures teach regarding adoption. It is a beautiful relationship that we have to our father. And he makes the statement that it is the highest privilege that the gospel offers higher even than justification. And when he makes that statement, he understands the boldness of that statement because he then goes on to explain or give a rationale for that statement. And because we think, wow, without justification, we have no relationship with God. And that's true. That's exactly right. And he, and he says that justification is the foundation, but adoption relating to God as father draws us higher. It draws us deeper into the relationship. So he explains it this way. He says, justification, which is God's forgiveness of the past, our sinful past, along with God accepting us in the future for all time, we are declared righteous before God. Justification is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel. What does he mean by that? Well, it's primary because it meets our primary spiritual need forgiveness and rescue from God's wrath and reconciliation, peace with God. We need justification to be delivered from eternal damnation. That is a fundamental need. So it is primary because that's our primary spiritual need. 
he says it's fundamental or foundational because everything else in our salvation assumes it and rests on it, including adoption. So justification is the foundation of our relationship with God, but adoption draws us higher. And he explains it this way. He says it can be argued that adoption is the highest blessing because justification deals with our relationship with God as our judge. It's primarily in a legal sense. But adoption deals with our relationship with God as our father. It's familial. It's closer in relationship. Justification in and of itself does not necessarily imply any intimate or deep relationship with God the judge. So you can be declared forgiven, you can be declared not guilty, no condemnation, but that doesn't necessarily imply that you have this relationship of love, of closeness, of intimacy, of being in the family with God. But adoption is a family idea, conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. And so it is a, it's a closer, more intimate, relational way of relating to God. This is a long quote, but I put it in the slides and I just wanted to highlight it because I thought it was just an awesome quote in illustrating what he's talking about here, about the, the, the privilege of adoption in the family of God. This comes from James Buchanan, an older author. He says, according to the scriptures, pardon, acceptance, and adoption are distinct privileges. The one rising above the other in the order in which they have been stated. While the first two proper, properly belong to the sinner's justification as being both founded on the same relation, that of a ruler and subject, and the third is radically distinct from them, that is adoption, as being founded on a nearer, more tender and more endearing relation, that between a father and his son. There is a manifest difference between the position of a servant and a friend, and also between that of a servant and a son. A closer and dearer intimacy than that of a master and servant is said to subsist between Christ and his people. Henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends, John 15, 15. And a still closer and dearer relation is said to exist in consequence of adoption, for thou art no more a servant, but a son, and an heir of God through Christ, Galatians 4, 7. So the privilege of adoption presupposes pardon and acceptance, but is higher than either of them. For to as many as received him, to them gave he power, not inward strength, but authority, right, or privilege to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So this is a higher privilege than of justification as being founded on a closer and more endearing relation. Behold, what manner of love the father hath bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. That's from 1 John 3, 1. So it is an incredibly beautiful thing that God has done for us. In, and I've said this before, that it's one thing for God to say, you're not guilty. You don't, 
you don't have to spend eternity in hell. But then to take that vile, uh, rebellious sinner and to not only forgive, justify, but then to say, not only are you not guilty, but I want to make you a part of my family. I want to adopt you, become my heir. That is mind-boggling, isn't it? That the God of the universe would do that for us who has offended him and his holiness in such a way as we have. And so Paul says in Galatians 4, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, the Lord Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. All the rights, all the privileges, all the blessings of full sonship brought to us through Christ. And then he reminds us that adoption is an abiding blessing. This is something that is permanent. In God's family, there is absolute stability and security. The parent, God, is entirely wise and good, and the child's position is permanently assured. So being in the family of God, there's no being kicked out of the family of God. It is a abiding, enduring relationship. And then he says adoption is our highest privilege in the gospel. He also says it is the basis for our life, the basis for our life. He says the entire Christian life has to be understood in terms of adoption. Sonship must be the controlling thought. In other words, in all that we do in thinking of our life as a Christian, think of it in terms of being in the family of God. So whether you're praying, whether you're singing, whether you're helping someone, whether you're reading your Bible, whatever it is, just living your life, think of it in terms of being a part of the family of God, being his son or daughter. So just as Jesus always thought of himself as son of God in a unique sense, so he always thought of his followers as children of his heavenly father members of the same divine family as himself. So we find several places in the Bible where Jesus calls his followers, his brothers and sisters. They're part of the same family of God. Uh, John 20, this is after his resurrection. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. Go instead to my brothers, his disciples, but he calls them his brothers. Go tell my brothers, I'm ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. And so Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. So Jesus says, you're my brothers and my father is your father. What an incredible privilege that is. So just as the knowledge of his unique sonship controlled Jesus living of his own life on earth. So he insists that the knowledge of our adoptive sonship must control our lives too. In other words, when Jesus was on earth, everything that he did, his whole lens for his whole life was looked at through his relationship to God the Father. And he was here for him to do his will. And he says, we should have that same mindset that we are in the family. We're in the family of God. We're a son or daughter of God 
look at our whole life experience through that lens. And he says one way to help us in that is the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount provides a good paradigm. And so the Sermon on the Mount talks about our Christian conduct. He says adoption is the basis of Christian conduct, the way that we live, the way that we behave. And he says this about the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount teaches Christian conduct not by giving a full scheme of rules and a detailed casuistry. That is not a in a legal way, prescribing every little law and regulation. But to be followed, in other words, not with this detailed way to be followed with mechanical precision. But the Sermon on the Mount indicates in a broad and general way the spirit, the direction, and the objectives the guiding principles and ideals by which the Christian must steer his course. And he says, this is exactly what a parent would do for a child. So in other words, a a parent can't tell a son or daughter every single thing that they're going to face in life, right? You, You can't give them a rule for every situation. What you give them is teaching. You give them wisdom. You give them principles to evaluate life and their experiences. And he says the Sermon on the Mount does that for us in three primary ways. And these three ways are these. One is to imitate the Father. So one overriding principle that the Sermon on the Mount teaches us is imitate the Father. You want to know how to model your life? Read about God. Read about what the Father does. Read about how the Father responds, how he acts, how he speaks. Imitate the Father. And so we have verses like this. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, because he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Or in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. In other words, model your life after the heavenly father so that as you live, you're bearing the family name and the family resemblance. So love others because God loved you. Love even difficult people and enemies because God loved enemies. God even sends the rain on the just and the unjust. So pattern your life after the Father. Another principle that comes to us through the Sermon on the Mount is to glorify the Father. So to pattern our lives after him, but also to live our lives in such a way to bring him honor and glory. So Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So... A son who is honoring his father is going to do what the father wishes, going to pattern his life after the father and is not going to want to bring any shame or disrepute on the father's name. In the same way, we as Christians living uh, in relationship to our heavenly father, we want to bring honor to him, not shame to him in the way that we live. So imitate the father, glorify the father and please the father. Do what the Father asks and what the Father wishes. So he says in Matthew 6, 1, 
Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your father in heaven, but instead give in secret. So then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So do what is honoring to God, what is modeled after his character, but also do what will bring him pleasure, will please God. And he says, the way to view this in scriptures like this is not in a commercial mercenary way in the sense of, God, I do this for you. You reward me with this. That's not the idea. The idea with this is just as a normal human father would delight in and be proud of his son who did what was right and did what was good and would receive blessing from that father. So also we in relationship to God. So it's not in the sense of a commercial transaction, but we love our father. And so we want to please him and he honors us as we please him. So the Sermon on the Mount is a guide for us in our Christian conduct and adoption needs to be the lens through which we see our conduct. So we live as children of God, imitating God, honoring him, seeking to please him. That's the lens through which we view our conduct. But he says it's also a lens in which we can view our prayer, our conversation with, with God. He says adoption is the basis of Christian prayer. So Matthew 6, 9, Jesus taught us to pray. And what's the very first thing he said? This is how you pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So the fundamental relationship of a Christian to God in prayer is a child to a father. That's the relationship. That's how we view it. So Jesus could say to his father, you always hear me. And he wants his disciples to know that as God's adopted children, the same is true of them. God hears us. The father is always accessible to his children and is never too preoccupied to listen to what they have to say. This is the basis of Christian prayer. We have a father who always loves who always hears and who always is accessible. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? And that's the way we should view our relationship with our heavenly father. So not in terms of an impersonal or mechanical way as a technique for putting pressure on someone who otherwise might disregard you. In other words, remember what we were talking about the last couple of weeks with propitiation don't view your prayer life with God as a, mean, as a means to try to strong arm God or, or manipulate God. No, it's not to be viewed in that sense in a mechanical way, but we are to view it as a relationship of love, of a child to a father. And so he says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that they'll be heard because of their many words, as if they have to try to manipulate the gods into doing what they want. Do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. You don't have to go through all of that uh, religiosity uh, in your way of talking with God. It's not like you have to strong arm God. He's your father. He loves you. He even knows what you need before you ask. And so don't think of it in a mechanical sense, but also our prayer, because we are a part of the family of God, he says it may be free and even bold to come before the throne of grace. So Matthew 7 Ask, and it will be given to you. 
seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened unto you. And some commentators say that these are in the present tense, which implies an ongoing. So ask and keep on asking, knock and keep on knocking, seek and keep on finding. Because everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And then he reminds us of the relationship that we have with God. He says, which of you, if your son asks for, a, for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, you're imperfect fathers, you're sinful, but you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more then will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So we can come, we can ask, knowing that our father loves us, knowing that he is good. Now, that doesn't always mean that when we ask for a fish, he gives us a fish. When we ask for a fish, he might give us chicken. <laughs> he might give us something else, but that's good for us. And so he reminds us that God lovingly hears our prayers. He's always open, always accessible to our prayers. But often he gives us what we should have asked for rather than what we actually asked for. Why? Because he's a loving God. He's a wise God. Just like, uh, you know, uh, a young child will, you know, daddy, daddy, can I have 15 cookies? No, you may not have 15 cookies, but you can have, here's some potatoes, here's some meat, here's some green beans, here's a cookie, okay? This is what you need. This is what is good for you. Our Father in heaven is good. He doesn't always give us exactly what we ask for, but he gives us what if we knew the mind of God, we should have asked for. So he is wise and loving and good, but he's always open to our prayers. And so this relationship, father to a child, let that be the lens through which you view your prayer life. And also the life of faith. He says adoption is the basis of the life of faith, the life of trusting God for our needs as we put his kingdom and righteousness first. And just as a reminder, he says, living a life of faith and dependence on God doesn't mean that we don't do anything. So he says, faith is not foolhardiness or presumption. There's a difference. So trusting God for my needs doesn't mean that I don't go out and get a job or work. God will provide, but he's also provided the means by which he will provide. And so faith is not foolhardiness or presumption. Faith, though, is tested when we as disciples of Christ live for him in a hostile world. And that's really the context of the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? That when Jesus talks about seeking first the kingdom of God, seeking first his righteousness, it's in the context of the possibility of life of hardship and of difficulty for followers of the Lord Jesus. There will be those who will face difficulty, face persecution. Even in the midst of that, we trust. We trust our God. Following Jesus may mean that we forfeit some measure of worldly security or prosperity, but Jesus reminds us of what our status as adopted children of God promises. And that is this. Don't worry about your life what you'll eat or drink or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? 
Look at the birds of the air. They, don't, they do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So in other words, don't be like the pagans running after all of these things. Don't let that be the focus of your life. Rather, let the kingdom of God and his righteousness be the focus of your life. And God will provide for you. He is a, he is a loving father. And so remember when times are difficult, when things are, may not be going the way that we want them to be going, remember we have a loving father in heaven. View all of life through that lens.